The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today it is an honor and pleasure to welcome Julie Guthman. She is the author of a fabulous new book. It's called Weighing In, Obesity, Food Justice, and the Limits of Capitalism. So we are going to talk about obesity in a way that many of us haven't talked about it in the past. Dr. Guthman is a professor at the University of California in Santa Cruz. Her research focuses on alternative food movements. She has won two awards thus far for her book, Scholarly Awards for Innovation, from the American Association of Geographers and the Association for the Study of Food and Society. She is a geographer by training, which gives us a new lens to look at the issue of obesity. Julie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, Melinda. Julie, I have to say, in a nutshell, this is not an easy book to read, but it is probably one of the most important books that we can read. Anyone in healthcare, anyone who teaches anyone what and how to eat, anyone who is concerned about childhood obesity, adult obesity, and the course of food and feeding ourselves today and in the future, would be wise to pick up a copy of your book. So thank you very much for writing it. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I think it's critically important because you bring in issues around the obesity, quote-unquote, epidemic that really haven't been touched on before. So let me first ask you a question. Why did you write this book? I wrote this book because I have been studying alternative food movements, and I am a critic of industrial agriculture. I'm sometimes frustrated with the directions that alternative food movements take with a, a great deal of focus on personal choice and market mechanisms of change. But I think what really struck me is when I started hearing within alternative food movements discussions about the obesity epidemic as a, a problem that alternative food systems could solve. And I just couldn't understand why this, you know, this movement would choose to kind of get on the bandwagon of shaming a group of people. And I, I just became very curious about obesity after that. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to know more about what people were saying were the causes and consequences. You start out in the introduction of the book by saying that the current public conversation about obesity is wrong-headed. What is wrong about our current conversation? Well, there's many things wrong with the current conversation, but basically I think that we don't very well understand the causes of obesity, we don't very well understand the consequences of obesity, and we really don't understand very well the consequences of the way we try to address obesity. There's much more that's going on in what's causing obesity than the simple calories in, calories out. The Everybody assumes that Obesity is a huge healthcare problem, and it's not like it's unrelated to health, but there's so much many more complications with that. And we need to really parse out what's pathological, and what's really dangerous, and what's just people just being bigger. And in terms of the the consequences of the way we talk about it, there's a lot of focus on inter- intervention and a lot of focus on getting people to eat differently and be different, and I'm not sure that's effective. And some of these interventions really can work against social justice, and that's one of my key concerns. 
Mm-hmm. I can tell you as a dietitian, when I speak to groups and I talk about my own efforts in this field of weight management, I start out by admitting my failure in that whatever we have been doing for the past 30 years, my entire career, has not been working, and that's largely finger-wagging, telling people to exercise more and eat differently, eat less and eat differently. So I knew that something was missing, and the issues that I started looking at was the influence of media, and only recently came upon environmental issues that I think we should be paying great attention to. And I was so glad to see that you did address environmental toxins and their role in contributing to obesity. Do you want to talk about how you discovered that as well? Yeah, that for me was the thing that really struck me. Honestly, when I was writing the book and I kind of was figuring out what the framework, I thought, you know, there is something missing here. I just said to myself one day, I wonder if there's a connection between environmental toxins and obesity. And I just did a Google search, and I found an article by a woman, Paula Bailey Hamilton, and she had written a book in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine several years ago where she was was hypothesizing that there was a strong link between environmental toxins and obesity. And she talked about how this the evidence had been overlooked by scientists, and she talked about all the possible chemicals that could be involved, and she talked about studies of lab animals that had become much bigger when exposed to particular toxins. So I started following that path and I started talking to some of the scientists. I started reading some articles about it and, yeah, I came across this quite a pretty growing body of evidence that suggests that environmental toxins are playing a role in obesity. And what's interesting about it is there, it's just not about affecting metabolism, that some of the, these toxins, and particularly chemicals that are known as endocrine disruptors, are affecting in uterine development. So at gestation, fetuses exposed to toxins through through the pregnant woman, th- those toxins are kind of changing their biological pathway. So for instance, some of these toxins can direct stem cells that have no particular direction to be fat cells. Mm. And so these are so these are causes that have very little to do with lifestyle. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the children who are exposed. So I found this evidence just really striking. And there's, this has been growing, and it's largely been ignored in the media until quite recently. And now there's some stories coming out. But it's, what's interesting about that is many folks who have been trying to write about this are kind of shut down sometimes. Like I tr- tried to do an op-ed with a local newspaper, and I had to work really hard to have them publish it. They said, we don't think this is credible, and I had to show them, like, here's a, here's a scientific article that has a 100 sites. Mm-hmm. So it's credible. Absolutely. It's interesting because in the book you describe a researcher who submits a grant for funding to look at this, and one of the reviewers writes in the margin, why would you even think about this? That's right. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of money, and I, I'll tell you, I was recently in Washington, D.C., and talking to some people who were looking at, you know, the Institute of Medicine report and were involved in that. And even among some of the biggest players who are making policy decisions, there is a reluctance to accept the evidence that endocrine disruptors are playing a role in this worldwide, global rise in in obesity. Right. The other thing that you bring up that I think is really important and is never discussed, at least at the meetings I go to, and that is the role of capitalism. Yep. (laughs) So I know that's a big chunk to talk about, but 
I really want us to broach the subject of how our political structures and our political frames set us up to be overweight? Well, that is a big question. But, you know, these days we're told that we need to restore profitability by any means possible. You know, we're told that we shouldn't tax business, that we shouldn't regulate business, that the only way that we're going to have jobs, um, the only way that we're going to have a strong economy is to let business have its way. And so we have a food industry that sells us whatever it can get away with because so so much food production is not regulated, both agricultural production and food processing is not properly regulated. So a lot of the chemicals, for example, that may be causing obesity, are, are they receive very little regulatory scrutiny. And so we have a food system that, that's under-regulated that sells us all sorts of stuff. And then, and then of course, as consumers, as, as citizens, we're told we should buy, 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 buy to keep capitalism afloat. And at the same time, um, we're told that we shouldn't be fat, we should be thin, and so we're sold all these solutions to our fatness. We're told, you know, we're sold diet books, and we're sold diet plans, and we're sold diet foods. And so I call that a political economy of bulimia, because we're both supposed to consume and eat to help bolster the economy, but also not show it. Exactly. And then there's the whole piece of the healthcare economy. Right. And it's very hard to tease out all of those different players that really depend on each other. I mean, if we're going to have a growing health care economy, then we almost need to have sick people, don't we? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, because clearly health care costs are problematic. Because you hear, I mean, one of the arguments about obesity that you hear these days is it's, co- you know, it's breaking the health care system. It's costing too much. Right. The health care system costs too much because, you know, because we don't have a managed care system. I mean, we don't have, we don't have single payer. We, so we have, you know, the, the, the cost of the pharmaceuticals, the cost of the drug tests. I mean, the, all, the cost of the insurance, all that plays into health care. And yet we hear that fat people are a burden on the health care system when indeed the purpose of a healthcare system is to take care of people who are ill, whether or not, not they're ill because they're fat. And so there's this kind of perverse logic. Mm. But I think to blame fat people for the cost of the, the healthcare system is outrageous. Mm-hmm. Do you think people who are, uh, you know, there's this theory that we should tax certain foods, and you you talk about this in the book, about how this is also wrong-headed in that, you know, we shouldn't be taxing the foods that people are buying. We should be going farther up the river and having the industry pay the cost. And similarly, you could say, well, we might charge people who smoke more for their health insurance. Do we charge people more who are overweight for for their health insurance, too? Yeah, well, that kind of defeats the purpose of um, health insurance. I mean, if only people who are well, and again, I want to be careful not to say that fat people are necessarily sick. Right. If we have a health care system that only treats well people, then we don't have much of a health care system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, of course, the logic where we're going. They want to, you know, the health care system, they don't want to, they want to exclude people with pre-existing conditions from care. Of course. Um, that's wrong. But in terms of, you know, who should pay, I mean, more generally, my book is really trying to focus on, bring our focus to the way food is produced, yeah, the way food is produced rather than what and how people consume it. And so a lot of the solutions like snack taxes, while they're regulatory solutions, and I 
and I'm in favor of that, they're they're really putting the onus on the eater rather than the companies that make this stuff. If we really think that if we think there are foods that are deleterious to our health, they shouldn't be on the market. Exactly. Yeah. And that, too, plays into the whole issue of capitalism here, because if we're going to continue to make profits, we want to make it so these foods are available to people. They're cheap. They're affordable. As you mentioned in the section on capitalism, you, you specifically talk about Unlike Henry Ford, who believed that we should pay workers a fair wage so that they could buy the goods and services they were creating, the fast food industry, you point out, has, quote, assiduously worked to ratchet down the income and wages of those who work in or for the industry. What is that about? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think it's one of the most important pieces of this because, you know, there's a lot of critique of the industrial food system from, you know, the food pundits these days, but very few people are talking about the labor. And we just had a conference at UC Santa Cruz a few months ago on labor across the food system to really put on the agenda that, it, that food system change really needs to incorporate people who work in the food system. The food, there's, I think, 40 million people in the United States that work in agriculture or retailing or food distribution or food service. And that's a lot of people, and they are the lowest paid. And the food industry and the agricultural industry has really has pushed down wages in part through using undocumented labor, where they can they can use wage abuse. I mean, they don't pay people a lot of the time, mm-hmm. and so that you know undercuts unions, etc. Anyway, so we have a food system that the people who work in it are some of the lowest paid, and yet our ideas about food system change these days are about buying our way to a better food system. We're supposed to buy organic, buy local, buy seasonal, and that depends on people with high wages. And so my critique there is that, that our theory of food system change neglects the very people who work in the food system. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Julie Guthman. She is the author of Weighing In, Obesity, Food Justice, and the Limits of Capitalism. She is a professor at the University of California in Santa Cruz, and her research area focuses on alternative food movements. Julie, I want to continue on with that issue with regard to the payment and treatment of of individuals who are really at the bottom rung, and yet every time I hear somebody complain about immigration and, you know, getting these or, quote, unquote, those people out of America, I think, gosh, you know, did you buy celery at the grocery store? Because if you did, you've got somebody to thank, and they are someone who's probably working in slave-like conditions. And I wonder, I just saw today that the National Restaurant Association was disappointed that, uh, at least at this point in time, and this is going to change, but I'm sure, But at this point in time, the National Restaurant Association was saying that they were disappointed that the Obama's Affordable Health Care Act was upheld by the Supreme Court. Well, people working in the food industry, gosh, we've got to keep them healthy because that's where a lot of our foodborne diseases come from is when people work in the industry and they aren't well. Right. It's, It's inhumane, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And again, many people in the food industry do not have health care, by the way. And many, I mean, many people in the food industry are undocumented. Certainly most of food processing and farm labor and also in the back of restaurants. Mm-hmm. People wash dishes and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So they're not getting health care, and they again, they don't get full wages. I mean, there's there's you know many people who document the wage theft that goes on in agriculture and food processing. So let's also talk about some solutions here. You talk about the topic of political ecology. Right. Would you like to expand on that? Well, um, political ecology is kind of an academic field. I mean, the point of political ecology is that we need to think about our environmental problems as problems of of social relations, of 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 political economy as well. For me, again, my research starts with the alternative food movements, and I've been, while I'm supportive of many of the goals, I've been a critic of approaches that really focus on voting with your dollar, kind of like these individual market-based solutions to food system change. So, um, and I, you know, I, I work with students. I've been teaching students who are very interested in food system change, and they, um, if not into the into the individual. Food purchasing solutions are very much into these kind of building small-scale alternatives. And these days, very few people really are focusing on the policy arena. And, and my goal is to really get people to think more about the policy arena. We need we need to regulate the substances that are used to produce our food. We need to really rethink our immigration law so we're not exploiting undocumented workers. We need to rethink tax policy. I mean, I, I also, you know, people... Went, People in food movements say you talk about policy, they think about the farm bill, and the farm right. bill is really important. But I also want people to think about policies beyond food and farming per se, like taxation. So to give you an example, um, you know, people are very concerned about the kind of school uh, food that is served in, in schools. Well, schools started going toward pouring contracts with Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola or other soft drink manufacturers, and they started bringing in Taco Bell or Pizza Hut or all these kind of uh, concessions because they needed tax revenue. And so those the school cafeterias became profit centers when they could bring in outside food or what's called competitive food. And so for us to have better school food, we need to have better funded school districts, and that comes from taxation. Um, we need to tax wealth. And so a lot of the book is really leading to this point of like thinking what could – Really, what can we do to regulate capitalism more, to redistribute more so we can all eat well as opposed to these kind of solutions that that allow some people with the means to buy their way out, at least buy their way out of some of the problems of the food system and let, let everybody else, you know, has, has to eat the other stuff because that's what they can afford. Mm-hmm. So from an individual standpoint, other than staying up on issues and being in touch with your legislators, how can we better affect policy change? Well, I think first we need to believe that it's possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what's so striking when I work with students. They they can't imagine. They can't imagine that the government could ever work on their behalf because they've not really seen it in their lifetime. And yet there are examples. Like, for example, I don't know if your listeners, are, listeners have heard about methyl iodide. Mm-hmm. This was a a soil fumigant that was designed to replace methyl bromide. And methyl bromide is supposed to be taken off the market for once and for all because it's um, it's an ozone depleter and it's in violation of the Montreal Protocol. So they released methyl iodide, This is and it's used in strawberry production. And it's been known to cause cancer and birth defects, all sorts of things. 
Well, in the California strawberry, in California, people fought really hard against methyl iodine. It was a coalition of environmentalists and farm worker organizations, and, and it was just withdrawn from the market. Now, that may be temporary. We don't know. But the fact is, here was a battle where, where people really organized and, and had an effect, even though what's amazing about it is that it received regulatory approval. Mm-hmm. Both the um, Environmental Protection Agency and California's Department of Pesticide Regulation allowed it to go through, and yet still, with pressure, farmers weren't adopting it, and the company withdrew it. So these things can happen, and so I think if there was more focus on those kind of politics, you know, hopefully they would build from each other, and we could start really changing things. Mm-hmm. But everybody's so convinced that, that that kind of stuff doesn't work, and so all they can think of doing is setting up an urban farm or going to the farmer's market, and those are all fine things to do, but they're not enough. Right. They're not enough to really re- reconfigure the food system. And yeah. so I think in terms of what people should do is, is start believing that it's possible and look for those kind of campaigns and really figure out how they can contribute to them whether it's by volunteering or writing a letter or sending money or whatever, but really believing that those are the things that need to happen. Mm -hmm. I so agree. You know, I was involved in an interview yesterday where the the cost of food came up and how I, of course, I am an advocate for organic food and farming because I am fearful of the effects of many of the agricultural chemicals, and many of them are neurotoxins, they they lead to obesity, as, as is described in your book. And one of the people that I was having a conversation with said, well, you know, that's just too expensive for people to buy organic food when when they're, you know, working two jobs and they're single parents. And her, she thought that the choice was either buy the food with the toxins or don't eat those foods. And I suggested that we look at that problem a little differently in that, we need to be looking at living wage legislation. We need to be asking the question, why can't people afford good food? And stepping in from that angle and just rethinking this. It's its more than just these two choices we've been given. We are allowed to bring other choices to the table. Would you agree? I completely concur. And let me talk a little bit about the cost of organics because my first book was actually about the political economy of organics in California. Good. And there's no question organics are designed to cost more. And it has to do with the system of regulation. If people want to, for farmers or other producers, to grow organic, it does. It takes more effort. It takes some work. They want to be rewarded for it, and that's how the system works. But what's also interesting is when I did my research on this, and this was quite a few years ago, I learned that there was a lot of farmers that were trying out organic methods because they were worried about having their pesticides regulated away. So this suggests that there's other roads to get people to grow organically besides or grow sustainably or ecologically, however you want to put it, besides kind of this price incentive. But that's how the organic system works. It is a price incentive. And to be honest, some crops are not really more costly to grow organically. Some are. Like fresh market peaches really are difficult to grow organically. They take a lot of work. But raisins, not so much, you know. So it depends on the crop. But the point is, is that there's other ways on the production side to get people to grow more ecologically. You can, again, regulate their chemicals away. You can have more programs through university extension that teach people methods as opposed to having the pesticide salesman come along and say, this will take care of this easily for you. So on the production side, we need other ways to move 
producers to more sustainable or, or healthful production methods. And on the consumption side, it, it, absolutely we need to have living wages. It's a problem of income when people can't afford this stuff. Mm-hmm. You brought up an interesting point about how farmers are taught, especially through extension organizations, how to grow crops most profitably. And you reminded me of a statement you made earlier with regard to we need to we need a strong tax system in order to adequately fund education. And that goes beyond K through 12. It goes up on through our land grant system. And the influence of agribusiness and the pesticide industry and the large biotech companies on even what students learn on campuses and what college professors can feel free to speak about, that's all really connected here, too. And you give a really good example in the concluding chapter of your book, What's on the Menu. You talk about the Obama White House garden, and you recognize here that the garden wasn't without its critics, if you can imagine, right? The Mid-America Crop Life Association, which represents chemical agribusiness interests, sent an angry letter to the White House claiming that only conventional agriculture, and when I say conventional, I want my listeners to understand that we're talking about agriculture that uses chemicals, can feed the world. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, I don't know, would we call it propaganda by any better word? <laughs> it's propaganda. I mean, there is, I mean, that is how the, the, you know, the agrochemical industry has flourished with this idea that we need to feed the world. And yet, so many of the problems with hunger around the world have to do with too much being, food being produced. It's a distribution problem. It's never a, an underproduction problem. And but the U.S. grows much more food than it consumes, and it exports a lot. And I'm not inherently a critic of importing and exporting, but a lot of our food is dumped in the developing world, and a lot of it puts farmers out of business, and that causes hunger. Yes, it does. So the whole discussion of scarcity with food is so off and so problematic. And we we need to understand more about how the food system works. And it's not a problem of scarcity in most places of the world at most times. Is there any part of the book that I neglected to bring up that you'd like to bring to our listeners? Again, there's so much in the book. It's a challenging book. But I think one of the things that really strikes me is there's a lot of investment among people with quite a bit of privilege in seeing obesity the way we see it. So when I get deep reactions to the book, it's really because of our own investments and thinking that we can change people by changing what we eat. So I think part of it is um, really taking a look in the mirror and figuring out why does this topic make us so angry and why are we so convinced of particular ways of doing things as opposed to others? Because I think if we really want to affect food system change, we need to bring people in who have much less privilege into the conversation and let them set the agenda Mm-hmm. of what should be done mm-hmm. to change the food system. You've brought up some terrific talking points that we should be bringing to our own dinner tables when we try to understand food and society. I want to just remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Julie Guthman. She is specifically an associate professor in the Community Studies Department at, in the University of California at Santa Cruz. She is previously the author of Agrarian Dreams, The Paradox of Organic Farming in California. She made reference to that book earlier. 
The book we've been talking about today, however, is Weighing In, Obesity, Food Justice, and the Limits of Capitalism. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank Julie for being a fascinating guest. And in closing, I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Julie, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was really fun. 